Radical feminists such as Sheila Cronin claim that heterosexual marriage institutionalizes the oppression of women. And many draw the further conclusion that the Bible is the root cause of all the mischief. The Bible teaches that the husband is the head of his wife and that she is created to be his suitable helper and is to submit to his leadership. Such claims are simply scandalous to many, a good number of whom conclude that the church and the Bible are chiefly to blame for the suffering of women in the institution of marriage. The truth of the matter is that no teaching or religion or social institution in the history of mankind has done more to promote the honor and dignity of womanhood than has Christianity. The historical record bears this out. And perhaps the point at which the Bible most notably elevates women is in its revelation of God's will and design for husbands. Last week we considered the biblical teaching regarding wives under the fourfold grid of a biblical worldview, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. There is some danger, I suppose, of repetitivity in here, and, and we need to be cautious of that, but I'd like to bring out different ideas under each of these heads as we consider God's call upon husbands from the four heads of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And let me just say again, I need to always keep everyone with me in these matters. This is vital information for our young people. It is vital information for the women in our assembly, for those who were once married, for those that will be married, for those that will never be married. We need to know what God says a man is. And our culture is fast losing that definition. As we think of it particularly with respect to husbands, we look under the head of creation that husbands are called to serve as the moral leader of their wives. As we noted last week, I'll repeat just a bit here, that God created Adam as the head of his wife. The head is the idea that he is a leader who occupies a position of authority in a relationship, in this relationship of husband and wife. The headship of Adam is indicated by three things, and we could list others, but I think primarily by the fact, first of all, that Adam was created before Eve. God established Adam's habitat, his occupation, his moral obligation to God before he created Eve. The Bible makes an emphasis of this point. Secondly, his headship is seen in the fact that Eve was created as Adam's suitable helper. She was conspicuously designed by God to complete Adam. Her very existence was oriented to her husband from the first breath that she took. And thirdly, Adam named Eve. Giving to her, assigning to her a name is an indication of authority as God distinguishes the light from the darkness and as he calls into existence the world. So Adam, following God, names his wife and the indication here is of his headship and his leadership. It is very explicit in places such as 1 Corinthians 11.3 which says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. 
Ephesians 5.22, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. We established this last week, and in a sense I have one sermon spilled over two weeks here, and so we repeat a bit. But created as his wife's head, I'd like to focus today under this idea of creation, that Adam was responsible to convey God's moral will to his wife. Let's notice Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Adam was responsible to convey God's moral will to his wife. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16. Having placed Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it, verse 16 reads that the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. After God reveals his will to Adam, Moses declares this in verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Since the text never indicates that God instructs Eve along these lines, not eating the fruit, I think we are right to assume it was Adam's duty to communicate God's will to his wife. And when he did, his sinless wife rejoiced to learn God's will from her husband, whom she knew God had provided to love her and to protect her and to lead her. And when we consider our own day, which of course is very different, we can say that God-honoring marriages still work off this same basic pattern. The circumstances will be different. For instance, a wife may know more about God's will than her husband ever will. But the same basic pattern applies. It is the husband's responsibility as the head of his home to lead his wife in the fulfillment of God's will. Now let's say that there is a husband who's a fairly recent convert. He really did not grow up knowing anything about the Word of God. And he marries a woman who has been saved for 20 years and knows much about the Word of God. It may be appropriate for her to teach him God's will on certain points. Ideally, another man will be discipling him at the same time so that he can put that knowledge into play in his marriage. But in the end, even such a husband as this has a responsibility to lead his family in a godly direction. And his wife, though she knows more and always will, is responsible to submit to his leadership. The issue is not the amount of knowledge or experience. The issue is the position in which God has placed this husband. And the issue is that he would lead and love his wife as God has called him to. She can help him. She can instruct him in an appropriate way. But he is the one who must lead. This is what creation teaches us. We look at the fall, secondly. Sin orients a husband away from providing loving leadership to his wife. In the creation, we see what God has called the man to do. And in the fall, we see that he is now oriented in sin against the very thing that God calls him to do. We notice in chapter 3 of Genesis that Adam follows his wife into sin. This is an implication that I'm drawing from the text, but I think that we can substantiate this, and I believe this is part of the account. 
that we are to recognize. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Having possessed the serpent, Satan cast doubt upon God's moral law. Something along the lines of, no kidding. God said that? With these words, Satan questions the integrity of God's word to Adam and to Eve. Satan then distorts the message, claiming that God would not permit Adam and Eve to eat from any tree in the garden, which is not at all what God said, and Eve works very quickly to correct the serpent in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Satan then moves to outright denial of God's word. Verse 4, You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. You will not die. Let me tell you the truth in this matter. Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let me tell you the truth. You can exercise your will just like God by determining for yourself what is morally right and what is morally wrong. You can know right and wrong in the sense that you can determine it for yourself. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, not the right kind of wisdom, but a wisdom that was corrupt and fallen, she took some and ate it. Now notice the next phrase. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. She gave some to her husband. Eve took the initiative to disregard God's will and to strike out on her own to determine what she believed was right for her. Having done this, she took the initiative and invited her husband to follow her decision. She gave some to her husband, the text says, who was with her. Now, follow me on this for a few moments. He was with her. This phrase is pointless unless to indicate that Adam was a spectator to the serpent's manipulation of his wife. Let's say that Eve did not find Adam there. She took the fruit at the serpent's initiative and ate the fruit in disregard of God's will, and Adam wasn't there, and she went to find him. Well, then the text, it would seem, would read something along the lines of whom she found. She gave some to her husband whom she found. And you have to ask about that phrase, who was with her. Does that make any sense at all anyway? How do you give fruit to somebody who's not with you? It doesn't even need to be stated, does it? I think it does need to be stated here. It is being stated here as an indictment against Adam. He wasn't gone. He was right there all the time. The man who was with her, she gives to him the opportunity to disregard the Creator's law, and giving it to him, he ate it. God ordained that Adam communicate God's word to his wife. God has said we are not to eat from this tree. He was to lead her in obeying God's word, and we find Adam here standing in the shadows, watching as she disobeys, and taking her initiative 
a step further and joining the sin. And when God confronts the sinful couple, where does he start? He starts with Adam. Verse 9. I should mention here, verse 7, of course, they realize their nakedness, they run from God. Then in verse 8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hide themselves in the trees. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Remembering again, God doesn't need to ask these questions. He's drawing Adam out. But I think it is significant that he's drawing Adam out, not Eve. Not at this point. A major weakness in the English language is the word you. You means you singular, and you means you plural, unless you live south of the Mason-Dixon line, in which case y'all works real well, and I wish we could adopt that up here. That's the plural form of you, is y'all. We don't have that in English, but I believe that the way in which this text should be read is God called to the man, singular, where are you, singular? Who told you, singular, that you, singular, were naked? Have you, singular, eaten from the tree that I commanded you, singular, not to eat from? God is addressing Adam. Now, Adam's defense lawyer could present a fairly strong case that the real culprit here was Eve, right? She is the one who talked with the serpent in the first place. She is the one who reached out her hand to take and eat the forbidden fruit. And she is the one who solicited her husband to join her. But God holds Adam primarily responsible, and he pins specifically on Adam the ultimate curse of sin. And that is death. In verse 16, there is the curse upon their relationship, but in verse 19, as God ends this season of curse, he says, You will return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. The first word of confrontation from God is directed to whom? It's directed to the man. And the last and concluding word of curse is directed to the man. You will die. Eve will die as well. Eve is rebuked as well for her sin. But God starts with Adam and he ends with Adam. He is responsible for the sin in his home. As 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says it succinctly, For as in Adam all die. How far Adam and Eve have fallen. In chapter 2 and verse 23, we find Adam rejoicing in the presence of his new wife, this euphoric, exuberant joy. She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I will call her woman, for she is taken out of man. She is one with me. He rejoices. He is thrilled. He exults. Where do we see him now? In verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3, we see him shifting the blame. The woman that you put here with me. She gave me some fruit. In verse 16, as we noted last week, and just to repeat briefly here, the second part of verse 16, 
There is also this curse. Your desire will be for your husband, which we understand from 4-7 to be a desire to rule, to dominate, to take the leadership. That will be your orientation, and he will rule over you. His orientation will be to dominate and to rule over her. This is the curse. This isn't a blessing. This is a horrible thing that is introduced into the relationship between Adam and Eve and now is prevalent in the relationship of husbands and wives on this fallen planet. From this time forward, husbands will be naturally bent, hear me, and know that this rings true. They will be naturally bent to place the blame for their moral failures on their wives. And they will be bent to misuse and dominate their wives rather than to lovingly lead them. This is the corrupt world in which we live. Every culture since the beginning has suffered from the failure of husbands to love and protect, to cherish and to honor their wives. It is at this point that the radical feminists have a point. And that is that marriage does seem at times to place women in a place of bondage and abuse and misuse. That's the facts. But we thank God that we gather in the name of Jesus Christ here today and that there is a plan of redemption. Think of that word, redemption, to redeem, to buy back out of this sin, to bring us back to Eden, to restore Eden in our soul, to reverse the curse. Christian husband, God saved you in order to transform you, not in order to perpetuate the sin of this world. He saved you to transform you. If you are a born-again husband, you can know that God intends to conform you to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And if he has given you a wife, then he intends to do so within the context of marriage. He intends for your relationship with your wife, whatever trouble that may bring, to be a place in which you learn to walk like Jesus Christ. What does this regenerate life look like? Let's look to the second half of the passages we considered last week, Ephesians 5 and verse 25. Ephesians 5 and verse 25. The context of Ephesians, we could go back to chapter 4, noticing verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is God's intention for all of his people, to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the agenda, and nothing short of it will do. Chapter 5 and verse 8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Verse 15 of chapter 5, Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. God has an agenda for people who have come to saving faith. That is to change us. That is to transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And that transformation God intends husbands for you. He intends for that to take place within the context of marriage. He calls us at verse 25 of Ephesians 5 to love our wives. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The moral imperative here is to love our wives. The pattern of love is Jesus' love for his church. 
That is, the kind of love Christian husbands must have for their wives is the kind of love that motivated Jesus to die in the place of sinners. The call to Christian husbandry is a call to die. It's not a call to stir up intense romantic feelings, although these may well result from obedience to God and are a blessing upon any marriage. But he is not calling you to stir up romantic feelings. Some books that are written today, you would think that God's word says primarily to buy roses and chocolate for your wives. Now that may be a wonderful thing to do within the context of your relationship, but that is not what God means when he says to love your wife, to buy her chocolates and roses. It goes a little deeper than that. The call to be a Christian husband is a call to die. It is not a sentimental, sappy love, blind to her weaknesses. Just going to pretend that she's this wonderful, perfect person and just overlook everything that's wrong. This is the kind of love that sees her faults, yet chooses to sacrifice anything for her ultimate good. When God transforms a husband into the likeness of Christ, that husband's love for his wife is marked by other things, by self-sacrificial orientation. It is marked by tenacious loyalty. It is marked by patient endurance, by gentle respect, by courageous leadership, by active provision, by fearless protection, by godly behavior. And no, those are not intended as hammer blows to humble us, but they ought to humble us. God calls on a Christian husband to do the impossible. It's an extremely high call. We are to love our wives, God says, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a high calling. Verse 26, we see the agenda in all of this. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Paul looks here at how Christ loves his church and says, this is what I mean. Just as Christ loved the church, this is what I mean to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, presenting her to himself as a radiant church without wrinkle, stain, blemish, holy, blameless. This is your agenda. Jesus loved the church by dying for her so that she might become holy and morally pure. He endured the cross with the hope that one day he would present his church before the Father blameless, guilty of no moral imperfection. This is the agenda. And the manner, verse 28, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Delivered from the tyranny of self-love, the Christian husband is to learn to love his wife as his own body. Pretty straightforward and explicit. He's one flesh with her, He is to love her with the same care that he naturally expresses for himself. In truth, Christ does not love the church as if it were his body. He loves the church because it is his body. And in like manner, a Christian husband is to love his wife as being one flesh with her. Even her physical interests become his priority interests. So, husband, God's call upon our life is high. 
and it will have a dramatic influence upon women. It will have a dramatic influence upon you and me. God calls us to actively nurture and encourage the spiritual growth of our wives. I want to camp on this point for a few moments, if you'll walk with me through this. These are things that need to be aired, things that need to be said, and so much more could be added. But this means, Christian husband, that it is your duty to cultivate a Christ-honoring environment in your home. That is not your wife's responsibility. She needs to cooperate with that. She can do much to aid and to help in that, but that is your responsibility. In a non-technical sense, your home is a little church and you are the pastor. I would not advise that you set up a pulpit at the dinner table and preach from it. It's not the kind of pastoring that you ought to be doing. But it is, in a sense, a little church, a little congregation, and you are the shepherd. We must set the standard for the kind of speech and communication that prevails in our homes. It is our job to assure that God-exalting music is played in our homes. It is our job to steer the course when it comes to what our wives and children read and what they watch on screens and what they do for entertainment. It is our job to hold high God's word and to lead our families in prayer. It is our job to set the course for our children's education and for their training, what they will learn in this world of opportunity and what they will not learn in this world of opportunity and where they will learn it and who will be the teachers. We are responsible to set the course for their ministry involvement in the church. We are responsible to actively chart a specific plan for giving to God's work. There are Christian husbands who frankly simply follow their wives around. Many of them are pretty nice guys. And they just go around doing what their wife initiates. They're going to cooperate Whatever her standard is for entertainment, ah, they can live with that standard. Whatever she wants to do in church ministry, fine, we can do that. However, she thinks the family should be led when it comes to devotion and it comes to the environment of the home, fine, I, I can live with that. That's not leadership. That's an abdication of God's call upon your life as a husband. You might be a nice guy, but you're not a leader. That's what God's called you to. Others go a different direction with a wife who leads in these ways and initiates in these ways, and that's to disengage. She just does her own thing. I don't really know what it is, and I don't really care what it is. I've got my life, and I've got my way, and I'll do what I think is right for me, and she can do what she thinks is right for her and throw the kids in one way or the other. Maybe they fight over the kids, maybe they don't. That's not leadership. That's an abdication of God's call upon the life of a man. Our calling, Christian husband, is very high. We are called to create an environment in our homes and to chart the course of our families so as to nurture spiritual growth and prosperity in our homes. I wonder where we stand on this. Is my wife's moral purity my highest goal for her? Honestly, I think a lot of Christian men would have to answer, my highest goal for my wife is that she stays out of my way. My highest goal for my wife is that she cooperates with my agenda. 
My highest goal for my wife is, you know what, I really don't have any. Our goal for our wives, our highest goal needs to be that she would be nurtured to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And that's not a wish. That's an active agenda that we are to pursue with all of our hearts. Is your wife's moral purity your highest goal for her? To the degree that it is not, you are abusing your wife. 1 Peter chapter 3. More exhortation to us as Christian husbands. 1 Peter chapter 3. As we read earlier, verse 7. Addresses directly husbands who are called in the same way, that is with an agenda to honor Christ and lift up a godly spirit within the home in the same way as he has called wives in verses 1 through 6. Be considerate as you live with your wives. Be considerate. The Greek phrase is living with your wife according to knowledge. There's probably a great degree of flexibility into how we would exactly apply that phrase, but the idea is to live with our wives in an understanding way. Consider it not in the sense of just being a nice guy, but consider it in the sense of having knowledge of her. Husbands are to study their wives and relate to them with thoughtful consideration. They are to treat them, secondly, with respect as the weaker partner. This is the polar opposite of our natural bent to rule over our wives, to misuse, and to neglect. This is the opposite. Treat her with respect as the weaker partner. It is a call to consider their generally weaker physical and emotional strength. There is a God-designed delicateness and sensitivity that is possessed by every godly woman. Some have studied hard for a long time to squash it, and you can't find it. But when it comes to a godly woman, there is a delicateness and a sensitivity that is God-ordained. And it is criminal for husbands not to honor and respect that delicateness. Now, every woman brings a toughness to a marriage that is in a place where a man doesn't have it. But in a general sense, there is a physical weakness and a, an emotional weakness. Not a weakness in a negative sense, but a weakness in the sense of a delicate nature. This weakness is of a sort that renders her valuable and renders her precious. We should think in terms of a precious piece of glass, a vase, or something of the like. It in no way renders her inferior, as the next phrase makes quite clear. Treat her with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. The Bible doesn't give that phrase away easily. Think of what the scriptures teach about the unbeliever. It's not particularly gracious. They are children of darkness. They are lost in sin. They are spiritually dead. But the word of God says about the woman, she is a partner, an heir with you of the gracious gift of life. Let this sink in, Christian husband. She is a child of God by the purchase of Christ. 
She shares your status in God's electing grace. And if you do not respect and honor the unique vessel that she is, God will intervene. The last part of the verse. Treat her with respect, with reverence, honor her, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Husbands who do not honor and respect their wives are disregarded when they pray. I don't know how that works. God hasn't given us his notes on exactly how he does this and how he disregards a man's prayer, but he just tells us that much and it ought to cause us to fear. If you do not respect God's gift, if you are not walking in right relationship with your wife, God will take notice and your spiritual walk will be affected. If no one's noticed, the goal today was not to go light. And not to make it simple. The goal was to look at it straight up. This is a high call. It is a very high call. And as I say often, I didn't know that I needed to be humbled, but here we go again. As we look at God's Word, what a humbling work it does in our hearts to know how far short we fall of the call of God. But aren't you glad that you serve a master who issues a high call? A call that is bigger than you, and that is greater than you can achieve, with the offer from Him that He will supply your need. Praise Him. This redemption plan is a wonderful journey. We conclude with consummation, and I simply summarize here. As we noted last week, Luke 20, 34-36, reveals that marriage is a temporary relationship. The depth of love and the wonders of divine glories in heaven will render marriage unnecessary and not even missed. But as 2 Corinthians 5.10 reminds us, there will be an accounting in heaven for all that we do on earth. And for husbands in particular, this means that we will give account to our Creator for how we led and how we loved our wives. As Jesus laid down his life to present the church morally pure before God, Ephesians 5, in like manner Christian husbands should strive to one day present their wives as holy before the throne of Jesus Christ. This is an awesome responsibility for which no Christian husband is self-sufficient. But this is an exhilarating truth. If you have been born again, God is transforming you, and he is transforming your wife. We need patience, we need time, we need his sanctifying grace, but he's doing this if he has genuinely saved you. We need to press on in hope and continue to be the men that God calls us to be. And I know there's a great objection at this point. Pastor, you don't understand what I deal with. I cannot lead as I should because my wife will not submit to my leadership. I would call upon our wives to appreciate this concern. It's very easy for you to dismiss it and begin to point the finger the other way, but I just call you here at this moment to appreciate this concern. No leader, no good leader, is ever going to operate well when the one he is leading does not respect and honor his position of leadership. It's just not going to work. But our discussion here is upon the men. And let me say to you husbands that it is counterproductive and even sinful to become frustrated with your wife's failures. 
it isn't going to get you anywhere. The right response to this biblical truth that we have considered is humility. To realize how far short we fall as leaders. And to realize that that may have something to do with why our wives don't follow. I'm reminded of a seminary friend who had trouble with his car. He grew so frustrated with this car that he really considered it might be time to junk it. But he took it to a mechanic that we both knew, and through circumstances of life, I happened to speak to this mechanic a few days later. He's a seasoned man with oil-stained hands and weather-beaten face who knew more about cars than seemed healthy. But in the course of conversation, the mechanic mentioned to me with just a tinge of sarcasm that if my friend would put oil in the engine and water in the radiator, that it would run just fine. I'm no mechanic by any means, but in that moment I was embarrassed for my friend. I don't know if he was that dumb or if he was just that forgetful or what, but he brought this car to the place of being so low on fluids that it had become virtually worthless. He was close to killing it. That scenario is not unlike the situation that unfolds in many troubled marriages. Armed with the biblical truth of how a man's wife is supposed to work, how she is supposed to relate to her husband, many husbands grumble at how poorly their wives cooperate with the Creator's design. But the truth of the matter is that many of these same husbands are like a man failing to put oil in his car's engine. They pull their wives into the counseling shop in a huff and wonder if anyone can fix this stupid thing that's failing to perform as the maker intended. And so often the real diagnosis is that their wives are failing to submit to their leadership and failing to respect them because they are not leading as God has called them to lead. They want her to submit to their agenda. The problem is their agenda is not God's agenda. And their view of their wife is not appropriate. Husbands, your wife is not a car. Might make things a whole lot easier if she were, frankly. Not so hard to know how to deal with those things that are so physical and right there in front of you. But she's not a car. She is a living, breathing human being made in the image of God and designed to complete you as her husband. And she needs a husband who is loving her as his own body and leading her to moral perfection. So pour the oil of sacrificial love and spiritual leadership into her engine and leave the rest with God. Yes, she is there to complete you. Yes, God calls her to submit to you. But remember that you have been called to die for her. Her ultimate good is your ultimate quest. And husbands, what is in our hands is to serve as an illustration to this watching and needy world of the kind of love that Jesus Christ evidences for us. He is not calling us to do anything that he's not done for you. Is it hard? Sometimes for some couples it's extremely hard. It will be the hardest thing you ever do in this world to love her as Christ loved the church.
But let us remember the big picture is that we simply follow Jesus Christ here. May we bow for prayer and just consider as we do, come before the Lord's throne, these words. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus loves us as a church to make us holy, cleansing us by the washing with water through the word, for he desires to present us to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This is how Jesus has loved us, and he calls us to this same course for a time. Our Father, I believe with all my heart there's not a man among us, a husband among us, who does not sense a great need. So we get our focus off of our wives and of their weaknesses and failings. And as we look into the mirror, we notice that our weaknesses and our failings are much greater. And I pray, God, that each one of us would do business before your throne now in confessing our sins, in confessing the very small vision that we have for just getting by in life, or perhaps even the secret desire that our marriages would end soon. God, forgive us our sins. May we repent of them individually. And Father, we admit and acknowledge that we fall very short of exemplifying the love that Jesus Christ had for his church. And we acknowledge how weak we are to even know how to pull it off, how to even begin. God, I pray that you will continue to sanctify the men of our assembly, those who are married, that you will help them to be faithful as husbands, those who will be married someday, that this vision would grab a hold of their hearts, that it would take root and that it would never go away. I pray, dear God, for the women of our assembly, and I pray that through this vision, their status, our reverence for them, our honoring of them would grow and increase, and that they would be elevated and honored as the people that they are, apprised and delicate, beautiful gift to men. We thank you for our wives. Forgive us for our blame shifting. Forgive us for our neglect and perhaps our manipulation. Teach us, Father, I pray, to lead in a loving way. I don't know entirely to whom I speak in all of the situations that are prevailing in the homes of our assembly, but I pray, God, there's, there will very likely be those men here among us who need to get away and to pray today. Who need to seek forgiveness at your throne. Who need to be changed quickly and dramatically. Whoever they are, whatever the circumstances, I pray, God, that you'll work in their hearts. 
that this would not just be information that goes in one ear and out the other, but that they would truly heed and hear. And for each one of us, dear God, that we would grow and be sanctified by this exhortation. I pray, God, that your name would be exalted, and we pray for any who know, here who knows you not as Savior. I pray, God, that you'll bring them into the love of Jesus today to recognize what he has done to provide redemption. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.